It's Monday, June 8th. We're studying 2 Peter chapter 3. We've reached verse number 9. So let's look again at the verse in 2 Peter chapter 3. The scoffers are mocking the promise of the coming of the Lord, saying it's not going to happen. We learned in verse number 8 that time is not an issue to the eternal God. And in verse number 9, we see a very important and helpful statement here. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, and they certainly were counting it slow in this regard. But He's patient, and very patient we're learning now after 2,000 years, toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So now we have the reason for the supposed delay. And we need to understand this, and we'll get to a great statement regarding the plan of God in verse number 10 tomorrow, Lord willing. But for today, let's look at verse number 9, and let us start with this statement right here. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. Some people say, well, He's behind schedule here. It's taking so long. And here we would remember that He's fulfilling a promise. And according to God, that fulfillment of a promise is a promise that He's made with a time attached to it. There's no you know, there's no question as to when this is going to happen in God's mind because he has set a day and fixed the day, as we saw last time, in his own authority. So just for context, you can see what they're saying. They're saying, where is the promise of his coming? Well, they don't know the timing, but they're questioning his coming because they don't like the timing. And they say, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing's really happening. Christ's kingdom isn't coming. Messiah, I mean, they. we wonder if they even doubt if Christ was the Messiah. We would think perhaps they don't. These mockers and scoffers. Well, according to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11, the inheritance that we've obtained, now we haven't gotten it yet, obviously this is a judicial statement, that we are justified, we're qualified for that inheritance, but the inheritance points forward. The inheritance, right, having been predestined, the thing that we're going to get here, the perfect world, the absence of sin, the passing of death, and no longer having any disease or decay or Satan, the temptation of the enemy, all those things, we are inheritors of that. And because we've been predestined, this is something that God does according to the purpose of Him. This is God, of course, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now, you can make a contrast here, by the way, between this will here, the wishing of something, which is a very human way to put it, and the will here. We sometimes divide that in our theology because we read Scripture, and clearly it's meant in two distinct ways. God has a desire to see people, in this case, come to repentance, but He has a decreed and purposed will, which includes everything, it says. He works all things according to the counsel of his own will. He's made his own decisions in his own authority, in his own time. He's fixed those things, including even our participation in the inheritance, which is another topic for another time. But the idea is that the I, the uh, promise and the fulfillment of the promise, in this case of the coming of the Lord, is something that is set. It will happen when he's chosen to have that happen. Habakkuk chapter 2 as Habakkuk lists some prophecies that are in the near future for him, probably a couple decades away from the first chapter's promises, uh, but it certainly applies to all of the prophetic promises of God. It says, The Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets. Make it clear so that people can see what I'm saying, so he may run who reads it. I want them to go and take this message and they'll be able to know exactly what I'm saying. There'll be no confusion. It'll be objective, propositional. It'll, propositional. it'll be clear, it'll be codified. There'll be no mistaking that I made this promise. For the vision, right, uh, probably assuming that chapter one vision that's uh, laid out in Habakkuk, he says, awaits the appointed time. And that gives us a sense that everything is on God's calendar, on God's schedule. It hastens to the end. It's making its way quickly to the appointed time. 
Nothing's going to change it. It's not behind. Nothing is postponed. There's nothing that's, you know, uh, procrastinated on God's part, right? It will not lie. It's now personifying, if you will, the idea of a promise that it is not going to deceive us. It's been written down, uh, in this case, the broader promises in our passage of Christ's return. If it seems slow, which is exactly what people here are saying, right? I think this is not happening as fast as I think it should happen. I don't know if it's going to happen. If it seems slow, here's the idea. We just need to be waiting for it. We need to be patient for it will surely come, right? It will not delay. Nothing's going to make it not arrive on time. It's like a train that's left a station and it's going to get to another station and the promise that it'll get there in this case is not uh, promises of God are not subject to breaking down or being derailed, but it's going and it's moving and point by point, month by month, year by year, century by century, and in this case, millennia by a millennia so far, two millennia later, uh, we have the promise of God on the way. Nothing is delaying it. Nothing has derailed it. Nothing is stopping it. It's on the way because it's going to arrive at exactly the appointed time. And that's the picture here. God is not slow. He is going to fulfill his promise. He's very clear about it, and it's working on a timetable that is already set. And while they're impatient, right? The Bible says here, God is very patient, which is just an attribute of God's goodness, usually seen against the backdrop of our own sin and rebellion. Look at Nehemiah chapter nine here as the recounting of the wandering in the wilderness of the Israelites. It says here, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and they stiffened their neck. There's that idiom we've seen in our study already in second Peter of uh, being stubborn and they did not obey your commands. They refused to obey. There's that willingness. They were not mindful that, that purposefully overlooking something. Uh, they weren't mindful of the wonders performed among them, but they, there's our phrase again, stiffen their neck. They were stubborn. And they appointed a leader. Remember, there was that rebellion to go back to Egypt, a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt, which is what it would have meant for them, right? It would be better to eat the leeks and onions by the Nile in Egypt than for us to... Um, you know, continue wandering under Moses, which they didn't trust at that point. And in that sense, they didn't trust God either. But you are a God now, Nehemiah says, ready to forgive, gracious and merciful. Now here's the old archaic way, at least in our language, to talk about the concept of patience. You are slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love, that great uh, Hebrew word hesed, a covenant commitment to your people. And you didn't forsake them, the people of Israel. They were promised to go into the promised land and God took them into the promised land. And we here see highlighted the patience of God, that he is slow to anger and ready to forgive and gracious. Now those go together so well because that's what we see. I see the that's what we see in our passage is that God is patient, not wanting people to perish. He wants them to repent. He wants to forgive them. He wants to be gracious to them. And in his patience, he's waiting for that, humanly speaking, right? He's the one, of course, that is initiating and working and developing and cultivating hearts and bringing people to repentance. But the idea of the wait here, if you will, the patience of God connected to the forgiveness of God because this is his intention. But he's a patient God. That patience is seen throughout the scripture. Here's another example of that in Joel chapter 2. It says, yet even now, yet even now, think about that, just, okay, even, even now, even to this point, it's been a long time since God has uh, promised that he was going to judge the people, but even now, and Judah, and Joel's writing to the southern tribes here, you need to know that even now you've got a chance, declares the Lord, to return to me, to repent. That's the idea. With all your heart, do it sincerely. Do it with those external signs, with fasting and weeping and mourning. We want to see that happening because it's sincere and it's coming from your heart. Rend or rip 
your hearts and not your garments. Remember the ancient Near Eastern sign of despair and repentance was uh, putting ashes on your head and tearing your clothing. And he says, not that he's opposed to those external signs, uh, but he wants the heart to be sincere. Do it with all of your heart. Return to the Lord. There's the idea of repentance. Return to the Lord your God. For he is, he's gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. He's patient. And he's abounding with, there's our phrase again, hesed as he relents over disaster. Now, it's a human way to put it, but he's promised to judge sin. The wages of sin is death. He would like to relent from that in our case. He'd like to not have that happen because he's a gracious and merciful God, right? All because he's giving that time, humanly speaking, he's giving time for us to repent. That's what he wants to see. And his patience and that kindness and that forbearance, as we see in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and following, that is a sign of God wanting us to come to repentance. So, Patience is the foundational attribute of God driving this supposed delay, which nothing is delayed. Everything's right on schedule. But that time that God is giving is all about more people coming to repentance. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that there would be adequate time, humanly speaking, to see these people brought to repentance. And I just want to focus in for just a minute on this word. We've seen it a couple of times in those Old Testament examples of, of returning to God in uh, Joel 2. But look at our great commission, if you will. Uh, it's often called that from Matthew 28. But here's Luke 24, the commissioning of his people to take the words of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he says this, These are my words. I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, there's the division of the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That's the whole purpose of this uh, earthly ministry of Christ, so that this now would be full of the credit and the grace and the mercy and the merits of Christ to bring forgiveness. But here's the portal, if you will, the human uh, doorway to see it in those terms is not a bad way to look at it. The thing that stands between the forgiveness and the relenting of the disaster of judgment on sin is this word right here, repentance. That repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And that's going to take some time to go and take that message to more and more people. And as those people hear it, and even as they ponder it, and as they count the costs, the idea is that there would be time for repentance, a turning or returning to the Lord, a turning from sin to God. That's the idea of repentance we've looked at in our study of 2 Peter already. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 4. John the Baptist is out baptizing in the wilderness, it says, proclaiming a baptism, Mark 1, 4, of repentance, right? For what? For the forgiveness of sins. The idea of repentance, that we are forgiven, our sins are removed from our account, from the human experience we have of having God work in our hearts, genuine repentance. Of course, it's always a trusting repentance. We repent from our sins, we turn to God and we trust in Christ. But the idea of this word being so important is so central, not only in our passage here, that everyone should come to repentance, but that we see it connected to the thing that really matters the most. Am I going to be forgiven of my sins when I die? Mark chapter 1, verse 14, uh, Jesus... Uh, I'm sorry, after John was arrested, yes, Jesus here is the subject. He comes into Galilee proclaiming the good news. What's the good news? Well, it relates to forgiveness. And he's saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, there's our word, and believe or trust in the good news in the gospel. And that is that God is ready, as he says at the end of Luke, to grant forgiveness to people because they are repenting of their sins. Luke chapter 5, verse 32, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, one more idea before we leave this verse for the day is to look at the delay related to the goal, which is 
that people should come to repentance. Now, all people are called right to follow Christ, but only those that God has chosen, predestined, those that God has developed and, and, and graciously brought to life are going to respond. But that time is a time that I think you can see throughout the scripture. It's a designation regarding what God is doing in the present age that looks different than what he did in the Old Testament in many ways. There's a lot of continuity, but there's some things that are different. And then there's a future that is a lot of things are the same beyond this church age, but there are things that are distinct. Uh, I just want to talk about the new thing that God is doing that's uh, described in this phrase right here, a new man. The distinction in this passage is between Jew and Gentile. Now in Christ Jesus, you, Gentiles, who were once far off, I mean, you had no connection to the Jewish covenants or the promise or the prophets or the truth. You've been brought near because Christ has reached out in this message to all nations through the blood of Christ, the atonement that took place on the cross. For he himself is our peace. He's our peace with God, but he's not only our peace with God, he's our peace now with the Jewish people. The Jews and the Gentiles were separated by so many ceremonial laws, dietary restrictions, so many things that kept them apart, and there was a lot of hostility between them. But God has made us both one. He's broken down in his own flesh, in the blood of Christ and the death of Christ on a cross, this dividing wall of hostility, which still exists between lost people of different descents, uh, certainly as it relates to Jews and Gentiles in the Middle East uh, and all around the world. And he did that by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. He took the ceremonial laws out of the way that he might create in himself, in Christ, one new man, one new man in the place of two. We had Jews and Gentiles, but he makes peace here between those two, makes peace with himself, obviously with those reconciled people, but also he reconciles us both to each other when we're reconciled to God, that he might reconcile, bring together us both, Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body. Paul's favorite phrase here in Ephesians of the church, in one body through the cross, thereby killing or putting an end to the hostility. So we want to see that church filled. We want to see all the people called to that place of repentance, reaching repentance and filling up this thing called the church. Now, there was a promise for the future of Israel and Jerusalem and the temple. And when Jesus was talking about this in Luke 21, he uses a phrase that's used negatively here and positively in the book of Romans. But I want to show you that contrast just before we wrap up. It says here in verse 24, they, the Jewish people there in Jerusalem, will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, which was started in 70 AD, remember? That was Titus, the Roman emperor, comes through and destroys Jerusalem. And that's going to be the case until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now in this case, it's a negative usage of the phrase, the times of the Gentiles, the Gentiles are gonna dominate Jerusalem and they are going to trample it underfoot until a particular time when they're not doing that and the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. I wanna show you another reference to that that relates to this one new man that Christ is making in bringing together the church age and it won't be done until the church is full, full with the people that God has uh, chosen to be a part of this organization. That's why we're actively engaging and calling people to repentance. But look at the phrase here. You see it until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In this case, it's not the domination of Jerusalem, although after that's over, there will be, as I understand scripture, a rebuilding not only of Jerusalem as a city, but the Temple Mount and the worship as it was seen in the book of Revelation, as we see it promised in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But here in verse 23, He's talking about they, the Jewish people. If they do not continue in their unbelief, they'll be grafted in, which is the promise prophetically. For God has the power to graft them in again, which he's going to talk about down here. If you were cut off, 
For if you were cut off uh, from what is by nature a wild olive tree, which is the picture in the context here, and you were grafted in, you were the Gentiles, put into this base, the root of the promise of the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12 and 15 and 21. And you have the Davidic covenant, the promise of a king that now is your king, this Jewish king, this monarch is now our Lord. If all that was happening in your life because you were grafted into this olive tree, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the Jewish people, the natural branches, he calls them, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Now, lest you be wise in your own sight, speaking here to the Gentiles, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, because that's what it was, this one new man, Jew and Gentile, and one thing called the body of Christ or the church, as it's called. Christ talked about building this church in Matthew 16. Well, for now, a partial hardening, and it's partial because there's plenty of Jews that are Christians. It's the minority in our day. I mean, it started with a lot of Jewish people, right? All the 12 apostles and Paul, of course, and so many others in the book of uh, Acts we see. There was a lot of people in Israel that were trusting in the Messiah, but it's partial, right? In the sense that there are a lot of them rejecting him, hardening their hearts against Christ. Well, it's come upon Israel until, here's our phrase, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So at some point, this period of the Gentiles dominating the work of God in the church, the one new man, is going to be full. It's going to be filled. It's going to be the fullness of it is going to be complete. The domination of the non-Christian hostile Gentiles are going to be done dominating Israel. And you're going to see now the fullness of the Gentiles completed so that now we have God completing the church and initiating, in my understanding, the time of Jacob's trouble, a time of prep for Israel, for the millennial kingdom, and all of that on the horizon, which uh, is provocative and helpful as we study it in the Old Testament, just the amazing thing that God is going to do to resume so much of what he promised in very specific detail It is yet to be fulfilled. So we're over time. But that, I hope, is an encouragement to you and reminds you that everything is right on schedule. The promise is on track, and we are now tasked with this, calling people to repentance so we can get the church filled and we can get on with God's eschatological plan, and Christ will be dispatched to come back and get his church. So thanks for listening today. We'll be back tomorrow, Lord willing, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Thanks for studying verse 9 with me today. We'll see you next time.